Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you this morning. If you would uh, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, we're continuing our series through the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew chapter 5, we've been covering what's been known by most of us as the Beatitudes. And um, I want to make sure that we understand uh, that it's not just about having the right attitude by any stretch. But it's about recognizing what the characteristics of a Christian are. And that if you are a believer in Christ, you will be on a journey, on a path where you will begin revealing to others that you are being changed into the image of Christ by reflecting these truths that we see here in Matthew chapter 5 and the first few verses. And leading up to where we are now, we can start in verse, verse 3 where we see the progression of things, how they build on one another. And we, we know that God is a God of created order. He did not create things by happenstance or just by throwing some things together to see what would happen, that everything has been done in an orderly fashion and continues to be done by God in an orderly way. And so this progression here is on purpose. Verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That means that you must recognize that you are a beggar spiritually, that you are completely poor, you have nothing to offer God to make him feel like he needs to save you for his own good or that he needs to save you because you're extra special, but simply that you need him and so he shows mercy and grace. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And once you recognize that about yourself, and you see the sin within you, which is so dark and depraved that it made God send his only son, not only to come for us, but to die for us on the cross, to pay the price for our sin, that it's so wretched, you then will be in Christ, mourning over that sin and its effects in the world, especially that it brought Jesus to die for us. That's why it says in verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And once you recognize how much of a beggar we are spiritually and how awful and terrible our sin is, it leads you to a posture of meekness, one who is humbled by the love and mercy of God, that he would love us so much that he would send us Jesus. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And then those who are low recognize how much they need Jesus and how much they cannot attain their own righteousness, even though it's called for that we would be righteous as he is, we'd be holy as he is. And it says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And we know in the Bible that it makes clear that Jesus Christ has, is our righteousness. And so we hunger and thirst for more of him if we are in Christ. We're never satisfied with what we got the day we became a Christian. We're never satisfied where we were that moment we want more and more and more of him. We hunger and thirst for him, and he alone can satisfy our souls. That led us into last week where we talked about, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. That God has shown us great mercy in giving us Jesus. That mercy is when you, you, you give someone the answer to their needs, that you help someone in their distress, and oh, has the Lord helped us in our distress. Amen. He has sent us the one and only rescuer, Jesus Christ, the righteous, the holy, our Savior. So blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And today, verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, 
for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's kind of unique, isn't it, in the very beginning when it says this? Because uh, you think pure in heart, what does that mean? There's so many options on the table for what it means for pure in heart. But before we even get to that, just look at that last statement. Blessed are the pure in heart for, why are they blessed? For they shall see God. Uh, Look at the other ones before that. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. You get the kingdom, right? You get to have the kingdom. It's yours. Sons and daughters of the king, your inheritance, right? He goes on, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You're going to receive comfort in your mourning because you see that Jesus has paid the price and he's overcome the cost, and so you can find comfort even in your mourning over your sin because God has declared you righteous because you've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. All this is ours. We can stop scrounging for it. We can stop the rat race of trying to gain enough of it to feel important or to feel like we can compete with the Joneses. It's already ours in Christ. We're just waiting for God to come back and set it all right. And we shall inherit the earth. What's funny is we won't even care about what we have then because we have Jesus. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. All that you want, all that you desire will be filled when you hunger and thirst for Jesus. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And oh, how we need that mercy. This window is different when it says, blessed are the pure in heart, not so that you'll get something in hand, not so that you'll just feel something in general, but it's talking about just seeing something. I mean, there's not too many of us that would say, we just want to see something. We want to taste it. We want to experience it. We want to have it. We want to own it. And here, though, he uses the terms, our Savior uses the terms, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Lord, help us to understand this morning what it means to see you in all your righteous splendor, in all your holiness. In all your magnificence, in your greatness, in your grandeur, Lord, let us see you in what the old ancients have called the beatific vision. Lord, let us see you for who you are. Father, make us pure in heart this morning, for we want to see you. Lord, help me overcome my sinfulness, Lord, overcome my inabilities and my pride and my failures. We know that you can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. You've done it for eons. So Lord, we ask you do it again this morning for your glory and for the building up of your church and for your kingdom and especially for the fame of your son Jesus. In his name we pray and ask these things. Amen. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. We're going to answer the question in just a minute, what does it mean, pure in heart? You've probably got your own assumptions going on, uh, but let me just say it's not exactly what you think it is. It does entail the part you're thinking of about morality. It does entail the part you're thinking of about being perfect, but it means much, much more than that, and so we'll get to that much, much more in a moment, but let's start there with the perfection, and let me just say that God demands perfection of us. He demands perfection of us. And if you're new to the gospel, if you're new to the church, 
This is where it feels like you're going to get beat up for a few minutes, and you are, we are, because the Word of God is going to show our faults and our missteps and show our great need because we cannot be what God has commanded us to be, what He's made us to be in His own image, that we fail miserably in this. But it's important for us to recognize that the good news comes, what the gospel means, the good news. The good news is coming, so hang on. But let's understand why it's good news first, according to this text. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure in heart. Jesus demands perfection of us. In Matthew 5.48, a little bit later on from here, he says, You therefore, he's talking to all those listening to this sermon, you therefore must be perfect. You must be perfect. In 548, he says it, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's bad news right there. He says, you must be perfect. Or in Hebrews, the author says in chapter 12, verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness, perfection and morality, holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You begin to see the problem that we have? I don't know about you. I've been around most of you. You're a little bit holier than me, but you're not holy as Jesus or the Lord. That's a problem. If you don't have that holiness, you will not see the Lord, the Scripture says. 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. God's told him to go find the next king. He says, don't look on his, his stature. He says, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. Listen, but the Lord looks on the heart. We cannot hide our sinfulness from the Lord. We can hide it from everybody else. We can do things in secret that no one else will know, but the Lord knows. We can even lie to ourselves and act like we're not sinning to our own selves. We can lie inside of our heads and in our hearts, but the Lord knows the heart. He sees the heart. Psalm 19, 14, let the words of my mouth, the psalmist says, listen, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Can we say with the psalmist, that the meditations of our hearts, even just this week, are all acceptable to the Lord. The anger, the frustration, the lust, the hate, the pride, the false humility, all the things that our hearts meditate on, are they acceptable? Psalm 24, 3 through 6, listen to these words. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Listen, this is who. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. None of us have pure hearts. And because of that, Jesus points out later on in this Sermon on the Mount that because our hearts are not pure, our hands are dirty as well. For those who hate, you've already committed murder in your heart. For those who have lusted in your heart, you've, you've already committed adultery in your heart. There is no escaping that we are not perfect, although God commands perfection. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
Did you know that purity is actually the end goal of God's choosing us? Did you know that? Listen to this in Ephesians 1.4. Even as He, God the Father, chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, so that, here's the reason why He did it, He chose us so that we would be holy and blameless before Him. That's the reason. Did you know that not only is purity the end goal of our election, but purity is also the end goal of our redemption? That God is saving you to make you pure to be in His presence forever. So He can have you, but He's got to make you pure. Listen to this. In Titus 2, 11 through 14, it's described, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, listen, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. If you and I are not concerned with our lack of holiness and our lack of purity, then we are not seeing things the way that God sees them. If you are not recognizing that our failures have impacts on our relationships with God and others, then we are not recognizing what the Scriptures say about our holiness or lack thereof. But as I said before, Jesus' concern is not just about the outward morality that we show, but about the inward heart. And he knows our heart. His concern is about the state of the heart. I'm going to get into one of my favorite old dead guys, Lloyd-Jones. He says, the heart is the whole center of Jesus' teaching. He puts his emphasis upon the heart and not upon the head. Blessed are the pure in heart. He does not commend those who are intellectual. His interest is in the heart. The Christian faith is ultimately not a matter of doctrine or understanding or of intellect. It's a condition of the heart. Let me hasten to add that the doctrine is absolutely essential. The intellectual apprehension is absolutely essential. Understanding is vital. Christianity is also not primarily a matter of conduct and external behavior. It starts with this question, what is the estate of your heart? Our Kent Hughes, he puts it this way, even more simple. In the Bible, our heart is the totality of our ability to think, feel, and decide. Amen. <laughs> to think, to feel, and to decide. John Piper says, if our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, our heart is the holy of holies. Another great old dead guy makes the statement, you've heard me say it before, that our heart is an idol factory. It is the holy of holies, it is because that is where we worship. And we make all kinds of false gods to worship. So where's your heart today? In whom does your heart trust? You can say intellectually that it might be God, but really, where is your heart's hope? Listen to this, Ephesians 3.17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Where does Christ dwell? He dwells in our hearts. In the holy of holies, on the seat of mercy, as we talked about last week. 
Matthew 23, listen to Jesus speak to the Pharisees, the religious people like us. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Listen, you can show up here every week carrying your Bible, amening, singing at the top of your lungs, weeping under the preaching of the Word, and be just as dead inside as somebody that's never stepped through the doors of a church. You can whitewash the tomb, but you and I can't raise the dead bones within. That's God's work. And we can put on the face for everyone else, but at the end, when he comes back to take us home, we will stand at judgment, and there will be some who say, Lord, Lord, didn't I prophesy in your name? Didn't I go to church every time the doors were open? Didn't I teach Sunday school? And he'll say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Lord, let it not be, brothers and sisters, today, that anyone would leave this place that would be separated from him when that day comes. But let our hearts be put on display before the Lord and let us be convicted of our sin that we might repent. Today is the day of salvation. Today. We may not have tomorrow. You have right now. Do not waste time. Some of us will know when the time is coming. Most of us will not. Let us not wait and put it on the edge and hope that we have another moment. Give yourself to Christ as he has given himself for you. Jesus is more concerned with the estate of your heart than he is with your outward actions. Because even the right outward actions, doing the right things, can emanate from a heart that is bent towards idols. My pride, what people think of me, how my parents feel about me because I go to church, how my husband or wife thinks about me because I'm actively involved in leading in some capacity at church, how others view me when I sing perfectly, how others see me when I can quote scripture. Those things can be the gods you worship, but the only true God is concerned about your heart, and he's so concerned that he sent his one and only son to die on the cross to win your heart and to take your heart and give you a heart of flesh for that heart of stone. One preacher says, what we are in the deep, private recesses of our lives is what he cares about most. Jesus did not come into the world simply because we have some bad habits that need to be broken. He came into the world because we have such dirty hearts that they need to be purified. Let me tell you, your heart is deceitful. Do not trust in your heart. The world around us tells us the exact opposite. Follow your heart. Do what your heart leads you to do. Trust your heart. Do not trust your heart. Your heart lies to you. You think that I'm foolish in saying that? How many times have you put your heart in someone or something that was totally wrong for you? How many times have you put your heart into something and followed your heart because you felt like it was the right thing to do in the moment only to find out later that it was the very opposite of right thing to do? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's what the Bible tells us. That's what God speaks about our heart. 
Our heart is always, listen, brothers and sisters, our heart is always the seat of all of our troubles. It's the very epicenter of our troubles in this life. That Lloyd-Jones guy, he says it this way, man fell in paradise. Adam and Eve fell in paradise. So it's not due to our surroundings or our environment. The problem is due to our heart. That's the problem. Mark 7, Jesus says, or it says here, Jesus called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. You hear that? It's not about what kind of food you eat. It's not about what you drink, no matter what that is. It's not about whatever else you put into your body that defiles you and makes you unholy. It's about what comes out of you that makes you unholy. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declares all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, listen, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Look, we can look against someone else and think how much better we are than them, but the truth of the matter is our heart is not only the factory of idols, it's the factory of all sin in our lives. Jesus says right past where we are here in Matthew 5, 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The heart is the problem. And our hearts must be made pure, brothers and sisters. Now, if I was going to preach the Word in the way that I heard it growing up, this is about where we would end, and I would just hammer the Bible a little bit here and be beaten on the front saying, you've got to try harder. You've got to work harder. You've got to do this. But the truth is, you and I know that you can't do it. And if you haven't got to that point enough yet in your life where you recognize that is true, you've got to go back to the part that talks about how poor we are in spirit, how we should mourn over our sin, how we should be meek, how we need to hunger and thirst for righteousness, how we need mercy. Those things lead us to understand we cannot ratchet it up within us. And the pure in heart are those who are mourning about the impurity of their hearts. You see, the pure in heart, this is the next level, right? The pure in heart are not just those who are morality right in their hearts. The pure in heart are those who are single-minded. That's what that word actually means more in its roots. Single-mindedness, singular in focus, pure, only one focus. That's what it means to be pure in heart. 1 Corinthians 7.35, the scriptures make this clear. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. You see? Undivided devotion to the Lord. Do we really have undivided devotion? Matthew 22, Jesus is asked this question, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, and you know this, 
let's key on one particular word that we pass over quickly. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Not 99.9%. Holding on to something else first. Not 98%. All your heart and with all your soul and all your mind, this is the great and first commandment. Or in James 4.8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. Listen, you double-minded. Why do you have to purify your heart? Because you're double-minded. And we are the greatest escape artists in the world. We escape the guilt of our sin. We escape the consequences of our actions. We escape the ownership of our own sinfulness so easily because we've worked at it for years and by nature we are sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God over and over and over. And the only way that wouldn't drive us insane is that we lie to ourselves, that we're not those people. The only way it wouldn't drive us to total despair is that we know that we have hope in Jesus. We lie to ourselves. We act like we're not double-minded. The question would come to you, what is it that distracts you from total devotion? What is the thing? Even the good things that distract you from total devotion to the one who totally lived perfectly for you and died on the cross in your place to save you totally for the glory of the Father. What is the thing that stops you from living that kind of crazy life? I believe, I believe, I just feel, I believe that the reason why we do not see kingdom explosiveness in our hemisphere or in the West at all is because we do not have people that are living totally devoted lives to Jesus on the whole. Now, that's not an indictment of you without me included. That's me too. Listen, I'm telling you, if people saw in us this crazy zealousness, I don't mean the kind that like condemns people in a way that brings hatred into the mix. I'm talking about a total kingdom-mindedness, a total sacrificial looking like Jesus living, we would see people coming to faith around us that don't know Jesus. There would not be at least 70,000 people in Etowah County that don't know Jesus. They don't regularly attend some type of worship gathering. People will be seeing craziness go on and they want to see what that was all about, even if it was just come to eat popcorn and watch it happen. The pure in heart are those who are single-minded. No deception, no double-mindedness, no divided allegiance. Thomas Watson, this Puritan that I love so much that talks about these beatitudes, he said, God loves a broken heart, but not a divided heart. For Spurgeon, there is one form of impurity which beyond all others seems to blind the eyes to spiritual truth, and that is duplicity of heart. A man who is simple-minded, honest, sincere, childlike, is the man who enters the kingdom of heaven when its door is opened to him. The things of the kingdom are hidden from the double-minded and the deceitful, but they are plainly revealed to the babes in grace, the simple-hearted, transparent people who wear their heart upon their sleeve. The pure in heart 
Man, when I hear that word, Spurgeon, I just quoted here, simple-minded makes me recoil, doesn't it? Do you want to be simple-minded? Let me clue us back into something we know and that we often quote. That those who have faith like a child are the ones who will receive the kingdom. See, here's, here's the truth of the matter. This is the simplicity of it. And this is why I believe he says here, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's this, that the pure in heart, those who have been made pure, those who have single-minded devotion to the Lord because they have been saved, and they know the Lord, and they are becoming like him. Those who are pure in heart are those who seek the face of God. And you will get what you ask for when you seek the face of God because he wants to reveal himself to you. He wants to be in your presence. All of eternity is all about you being saved so that you can be in his presence and enjoy him forever. So that he receives glory in saving you and redeeming you and sanctifying you so that you can enjoy him and be in his presence. So if you are pure in heart, that means you are singularly focused on God alone and you want to see his glory. So you, yes, you love your children but you love them so much that you recognize the greatest thing for them is that you would love God more and that you would usher them into his presence with you as you bring them up in the faith. And that you love your husband or your wife so much that you will not let them continue on in a way that seems to be absent from God in their lives. You will kindly and gently, prayerfully lead them to hoping in the Lord, even if it's hard and long journeyed. You will not be satisfied because you are singularly focused on God and His glory. The pure in heart are those who seek the face of the Lord. Listen, hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. Is this our prayer? Seeing the face of God is to be a sweet and comforting experience. If we see his face, we are helped. If he turns his face away, we are desolate and lost. That's the reality of relationship with God. So let me make sure we understand. I'll make sure I'm really clear here. You're commanded to seek the face of the Lord. You're commanded to be pure in heart. But the reality is that we cannot make our own hearts pure. The purification of the heart is a divine work of God. It's a divine work of God. Listen to this, Proverbs 20, verse 9. Who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin? The answer is no one. Ezekiel 36, 25. I will sprinkle, this is God speaking, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Or Jeremiah the prophet. God says, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way. Not two, not three ways. One heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. Or in the book of Acts. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. 
Who does the cleaning up? Who does it? God does it. That's right. God does the cleansing. It's a divinely, purely God working in us to clean us up. And if we have been cleansed from the inside out, we will desire to see Him. This is why it is good and right for you to thank the Lord for one more day on this earth. It is good and right for you to thank the Lord that you get to have more time with your family. It is good and right for you to desire to be here in this place for the sake of others or for your own joy with the people you love or for this, waiting for the salvation, working for the salvation of others. But it is not good and right to not want to be with the Lord. That's why there's this strange, crazy thing where Paul says, I want to go be with the Lord, but I want to stay here for you too. That's why John, at the end of his revelation, when he is writing this out to the churches, he says, come Lord Jesus, come. I want to see you again, face to face. I want to see you. You see, seeing God is the ultimate desire of the Christian. Is that our ultimate desire? If our ultimate desire is not having God himself, we are missing the point. Christianity is about being with God, not just about being saved from your sin. Being saved from our sin enables us to be with God. It's a part of the process of being with Him. He says, I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will walk among you. He will be our God because He brings us into His family, because He saves us from our sin, and we can be with Him because He's made us clean and made us pure in heart so that we can be with Him forever. The purpose, though, is to be with Him forever. And our single-minded devotion, our ultimate desire is to be with Him and to see His face. Seeing God means being admitted into His presence. Being admitted into God's presence is the hope and desire of all who have been redeemed. So here's the question. If you do not have a desire to be in His presence, if you want heaven without the Savior, if you want redemption without the family of God, if you want to be made better, but you don't want to be a servant of the Lord, then you have missed the point, and what you want is not the end, but the means. And we have it backwards, and we've missed the point, and we are in danger of hellfire. Revelation 22, 4. Listen to this. For all eternity, it says this is what's happening. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. We will see his face forever. If you are his now, you will see his face. Spurgeon, the expression, they shall see God, may mean something else. As I've already said, those who saw Oriental monarchs were generally considered to be highly privileged persons. There were certain ministers of state who had the right to go in and see the king wherever they chose to do so. And the pure in heart have just such a right given to them to go in and see their king at all times. In Christ Jesus, they have boldness and access with confidence in coming to the throne of the heavenly grace. Being cleansed by the precious blood of Jesus, they have become the ministers, that is, the servants of God, and he employs them as his ambassadors and sends them on high and honorable errands for him, and they may see him whenever their business for him entitles them to an audience with him. You see, seeing God will transform you. It will change you. When you see who he is, it changes you. When Paul, who was fighting against God, was run smack dab into Jesus on the road to Damascus, it changed everything. You cannot run headlong into the creator of the universe and not be changed. You will look different. It transforms you. 
Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is, John says. We will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. We are being transformed into His image. The more we see His face through the Word of God, the more we will become like Him. That's what it looks like for those who love Jesus. Seeing God will also fill us with joy. 1 Peter 1.8, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you did not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. When you find yourself in the dark night of the soul, in the hard moment, when God has allowed you to go into the abyss, even for a season, what feels like an eternity sometimes, even then we know for His that He is with us. And when he brings us out and we see the glory of his face through the knowledge of his word and the experience of his Holy Spirit, it fills us with joy. If you don't have that joy today, you can have that joy. If you haven't been transformed, today you can be transformed. But not by your own doing, not by you pulling up yourself by your bootstraps, not by you working hard to make it happen. Seeing God will bring you that joy and transform you and satisfy you in every way. Bema says, I'll be satisfied with your likeness. What we have to do is set our gaze upon Jesus and be saved. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Hebrews 5.8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus set his gaze, to bring it to a close here, Jesus set his gaze upon the Father and determined not to be double-minded, but to be singularly, singularly focused. His entire aim was to be completely obedient even to the point of death. For the glory of his Father and for the salvation of us, the lost, who would be his brothers and sisters. And although we lose focus all the time, Jesus never lost focus, not even once. Although we continually avert our gaze from God, Jesus never once averted his eyes from the prize, the glory of his Father, and the salvation of his brethren. And so while you may have made the mistake and failed, while you feel like you can never be pure in heart, God can make you pure. It is a continual process. He can save you now, put a heart of flesh in you, take out that dead heart of stone, and he will work you into the, the image of Christ Jesus. If you will turn to him today and repent and believe in Jesus. Although we often set our eyes on lesser things, Jesus stayed singularly focused on glorifying his Father by saving our souls through his sacrificial death on the cross. Live the perfect life that we cannot live, pure in heart, totally devoted, so that we who fail in that can be ushered into the kingdom of God by his righteousness, by his glory, for his name's sake. Because he loves you and me. So do not today, do not today think that you've made it there because you prayed some prayer, because you go to church, or because you've walked in some moral ways that you used to not walk in. Instead, let us go to the Lord and let's seek Him so that He reveal Himself through His Word today that we may know Him and know who He is and we may see Him and be satisfied. See Him and be filled with joy. See Him and be encouraged to walk in His ways. That others might look at us and say, no, you are broken. And we can say, yes, 
Yes, yes, I am broken, and my Savior is whole, and He makes me whole. Yes, I have failed over and over again. My Lord has never failed me, and He will never fail you. Put your hope in Him. Yes, yes, but you said you were going to do X, Y, Z, and you didn't get it done that way. You're right. I made mistakes. I've dropped the ball. I've not been perfect like I wish I could be, but don't put your hope in me. Put your hope in the one who has always been pure in heart. Seek his face and find joy everlasting. Listen, today is the day of salvation if you've never put your hope and faith in Jesus. And I'm telling you right now, listen, if the Lord is beckoning in your heart, calling you out, do not push back on him. Instead, fall under his grace this morning. Repent and believe in Jesus. And if you need someone to pray with you, you're struggling, if you're hurting, you're not alone. The enemy wants you to feel alone. You're not alone. And there are people gathering right after we're done now in small groups, sharing life together so that you can find that same company of sinners saved by grace. If you don't have that, stick around and I'll get you in one before we go. Do not leave this place without responding to the Lord this morning. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing, you deal with the Lord. If it leads you to joy and you want to sing, do that. If you need to pray, do that. If you need to repent, do that. Do not walk away from what the Lord's doing in you this moment. Father, we need your grace and your kindness and your goodness. We cannot in our own selves do what needs to be done, but you have done everything that needs to be done. We fail to be pure in heart, to be perfect, singularly focused. Lord, you are completely good always and always focused on accomplishing your will for our good and for our joy and for your glory. So help us, Lord, to lean into you. Save us, Lord, from our own selves, from our own deceitful hearts. <coughs> Give us the hope that can only be found in Christ Jesus this morning. And I pray if there's anyone here that does not yet know you, that you would break into their hearts you would rob the stony heart out and you would replace it with a fleshly heart that would be given love and faith. Lord, please, please save souls even in our midst this morning that we might praise you, sing of you, and shout your glory from the rooftops, which we will do either way, Lord. And we ask that in Jesus' holy name. Amen.